After her panel discussion on racial equity at the Better Discourse Conference in Milwaukee, we caught up with Melissa Chen. Here's our conversation with her. Hi, this is Karen Carter from Unsafe Space. We are reporting from the Better Discourse Conference in Milwaukee, and we're here with a special guest, Melissa Chen. Hi. Thank you for being here, Carter and Carrie. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for coming on. Before we get started, I have one special thank you I have to say to Tabitha. Carter finally brought my dolly shawl, and I love it so much. Thank you. It goes with everything. I know it's going to go with everything I wear. Yeah. It's really nice. (laughs) Thank you. I finally, sorry it took so long, Tabitha, but yes. So, Melissa, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about yourself. Like, tell me how you got into doing uh, political commentary, what compelled you to start speaking, and uh, and then we can get, I also want to ask about your dog later. Oh, okay. He's actually here. Only the important <laughs> stuff I see. Right. Um, so, I'm, I'm born in Singapore and um, kind of immigrated to the U.S. when I was 17 for college. Uh, I knew it was one of those things where I knew I wanted to come here. Like it was like it was a plot. Like um, I, you know, like some people are just kind of born Americans. I don't know how to describe it. Sometimes you'll be like visiting a country and and the cab driver's just like talking to you. Like this guy is just an American. Um, there were certain things about um, American culture that I internalized and and loved about it. Um, the the first. The first one actually is that there was this culture of almost like just free direct speech that was just so refreshing because, you know, juxtaposed to the culture I grew up in. Singapore is known for being a little repressive on, on the speech side. Government. Just a little bit. Right. Exactly. <laughs> a little. Um, they actually have one of the most sweeping online uh, falsehood, you know, hate speech bills right now. Um and, you know, the consequence of that is actually jail. So it's not like, oh, I just got deplatformed from Twitter. It was you might say something and end up, you know, just going to jail. Um, and also, I, you know, I grew up in a fairly like religious household. And so about 17, I left, I came to college here and it was just freeing in almost every way on the societal way and the family way. Um, and I really enjoyed, you know, I felt like I was an adult for the first time, like going to college, which is ironic because maybe about like eight, nine years later, the, the university environment changed. Like it used to be that going to college was where you're going to encounter dangerous ideas. Um, just, you know, like, again, like coming from a, you know, fairly sheltered, repressed kind of childhood, university was like the first place. I was so excited to be like facing contentious ideas that I never even heard of. I, dr- I dreamed that, you know, college was basically everyone sitting under an oak tree talking about like, I don't know, secular transcendentalism or something. That's kind of what I imagine going to college would be. And I was so excited. And, and actually, to be fair, because I started in t- 2005, it was like that. It was exactly my experience. I remember um, arguing with like, you know, like late at night in the dorm, the college Democrat president would be like, uh, just coming to my dorm and would just be arguing about politics. And during that time, I was, you know, a huge Bush supporter. So um, it, it's, it was so fun. And and but you could be a Bush supporter and still be friends with someone you argued with. At exactly. That time, exactly. Right? Okay. Yeah. And it was it was just like it was good fun. Like we were always kind of, you know, roughhousing and teasing each other. And it was just completely open and, and a great experience. Exactly what I thought it was going to be. Um, and then about like maybe seven, eight years later, I was, you know, graduated. I was already working. Um, but I was kind of on university campus still because I was working in a research institute. A lot of things changed. Um, you started to see like 
more censorious behavior, you know, reports about like students shutting things down, disinviting speakers. And then, you know, especially when when certain things like, you know, the Nicholas Christakis case where he was at Yale and the students just surrounded him and were shouting him down and saying, this is, well, I guess the name of your show, this is not, a, you know, this should be a home. This shouldn't be a unsafe space, basically what she said. That's when it really hit me. I'm like, I, I came here because, it, you know, I thought it was an unsafe space on purpose to just challenge myself. Right. And and you know you're in a situation now where it's it's like university instead of being this like new frontier of adulthood where you're facing dangerous ideas was an extension of just childhood and you know it's like basically kids go there to prolong being kids and prolong being sheltered and you know like safetyism yep. so that was frustrating that's why i started so you started speaking. talking started talking a lot more about this um and eventually my my kind of pivot to because you know i thought i was going to be in academia my whole life i thought i was going to you know go on after graduate school like kind of stay on in academia i loved research a lot as a science you know science major and um i don't know what drew me i think probably because i started my foundation and you know it was a little like we were already dealing with like this world of ideas kind of roughly public intellectuals we were translating books by stephen pinker by sam harris into arabic um and and so you know kind of reading all these people's thoughts and everything it's it was kind of a, a more macro view on life than science was science was like really interesting to me because it's like you're you're trying to find answers but you know everything about nothing about like okay do these two proteins interact but but it was increasingly getting a little boring and the academic culture was getting stifling um but the world of ideas that was still where that you know contestation was taking place like the intellectual battle so so I, I started like, you know, kind of being friends with a lot of these authors, um, started to tweet right on my own and, um, you know, eventually got a little thing going on with with Spectator and um, been writing for them ever since. I'm actually quite curious about Ideas Beyond Borders because it's a concept that I really like and I think is uh, quintessentially enlightenment, right, which is this idea that like ideas really matter. And that's what's made us successful, not any kind of other, you know, mystical proclamations about the, the people in our land or our right. love or kind of the stupid things politicians say that makes American Americans like that's not what's made it successful. It's ideas. Right. right. Uh, can you talk about what the mission there is and, and um, what you guys have been doing? OK, so, you know, it's, it started with my my co-founder, who is an Iraqi refugee, and um, he just became an American citizen last year. So. uh he he's one of those people like we kind of instantly click you know those kind of people who are born americans like w when we met each other i was still in, in um school up at uh in cambridge and he came to give a speech on campus i stayed on after and we just headed off and that's kind of how i transitioned out of academia um so ideas beyond borders we founded it maybe three years ago and the idea is that you know in in a lot of parts of the world but in particular in the middle east um, you have more books, basically five times Greece, by the way, the country of Greece translates about five times more books than all of the Arabic speaking world. And, you know, there's like 20 times more Arabic speakers than Greek speakers. So just to give you an idea of, you know, how how much is really accessible in terms of knowledge in their own language um, to the Arabic world. Right. So we decided, okay, you know what? We somebody needs to plug this gap. There is, you know, we wonder why 
when we went into Iraq and said, like, hey, we're going to bring freedom and democracy to these people. Um, why can't it just take root? Right after Saddam fell, why doesn't, you know, just the fact of there being a vacuum all of a sudden just cause liberal democracy to take root? And one of the problems is that, you know, people are not educated to know why they should be valuing these ideas and these institutions. And of, of course, there was a vacuum like these institutions just weren't there. Education wasn't there. Um, they were facing war for like so many years. Saddam obviously created a very, very repressive environment. Um, and so, you know, the mission of the organization was just let's plug this information deficit that exists in the Arabic world in their language. We can't expect, you know, I know the internet connected the world, but if you have, say, a housewife living in Saudi Arabia and she's starting to have questions and she wants to read more about, I don't know, like feminist thought or whatever it was, um, where would she go? I mean, do we expect her to learn English and like find some books and where would, you know, we wanted right. to make it easy, sort of lower the, the energy barrier to, to accessing all this information. And so we acquire, we, what we do is number one, acquire books by authors who, um, you know, have like they who write about things like science, pro-liberty ideas, um, even things like critical thinking. And we translate everything in Arabic, digitized, and it's loaded all on our, our library, which we named Beit al-Hikmah. That's amazing. Yeah, the name of the library is called Beit al-Hikmah after, um, in Arabic, it means uh, the house of wisdom. Okay. We call it 2.0 because it's digital. Um, because the House of Wisdom used to exist in uh, Baghdad, the city of Baghdad, during the Islamic Enlightenment. So this was like, you know, when basically Christendom was in the Dark Ages, you had in um, in the Middle East, you know, you had this like flourishing of, of Islamic thought because it was pluralistic. That was the time when Jews used to live in Iraq, you know, mm -hmm. when all sorts of people kind of gathered in places like Damascus and um, and Baghdad. So House of Wisdom was the name of the library in Baghdad. And, you know, eventually it was sacked by the Mongols. Um, they, you know, in, when they invaded, they right. sacked pretty much everything. And and when more repressive forms of government took over after, it never recovered. And so that's why we speak of, you know, we call this, the we thought it was symbolic to call it this House of Wisdom 2.0. And the idea being that to usher in, to help usher in an enlightenment that, you know, was was due to the people. Sure. And, the, and my understanding, I don't, I'm not an expert at all and on Muslim culture or Iraq, but my understanding is that it's not really encouraged to read anything but the Quran. Like yep. the Quran is like, well, that's where all the answers are. Uh, so there isn't, that's maybe one of the reasons why there's not a lot of books and other literature right. for people. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, and also, I mean, there's the, and it's imposed by several layers of society. It's not, so it's like you said, it's not just religious. It's also like government um, and then your family and your general societal structure as well. It's interesting because the U.S. has a history of saying they were going to spread democracy and freedom. But the one thing that they could be doing is telling people the blueprint for the success for the U.S., which is based on ideas and exactly. like translating that and like airdropping books is probably a better way to overturn government than sending in troops. I think you're exactly right. So I, you know what's funny? Cause I, so when, when we started this, I came across something that actually exists, like an early Ideas Beyond Borders that existed. And it was funded by the State Department. It, it was oh, wow. like several university presidents, and this was in the 1950s, several university presidents and, you know, the head of the 
New York City Public Library, they all came together and started an organization called Franklin House Publications. Okay. And and because this was before the internet, right? right? So their goal was to prop up and set up the individual publishing markets in various um, parts around the world. And they used to focus on places where, you know, there was like an incoming red wave, developing nations. So right. you're looking at places like... Um, I don't know, like Cambodia or, you know, like Yemen or, or Libya. And they would just like set up an office there, you know, try to recruit local people to to start to kickstart a publishing industry and get and, and send them books from America to translate and to publish and sell them. And, it, you know, it's it kind of stopped in the 70s. Like, you know, just before you like the to be Iranian... proud of America after that, I guess. I, I don't know. The... <laughs> I don't know what happened. But, you know, it's like when I was trying to trace the demise of this organization, um, I discovered that it was it came down to like, oh, we felt like we achieved our mission anymore. I, I, that's code for like, we're, we're not funded anymore. By yeah. the way. I run a nonprofit. So I know. Okay. <laughs> uh, and um, and then it just it just kind of died. And it made me kind of sad because, you know, it's imagine if we. We stood by our ideas um, and were, you know, I feel like in the West now it's very difficult to defend Western ideas. And the, the problem also being that there are a lot of people trying to couple ideas to like origin. Right. Right. And so they're, they're playing this game where it's like, all right, so you know, you're supporting Western supremacy now if you're defending those ideas, which is very right. dangerous. They're trying to couple it to race too and to sex. Exactly. Yeah. To sex. How, well, how? even there, the way that they're saying now that certain things are traits of white male culture, yeah. like individualism, hard work, you know, determination, Rugged that these are white male yeah. things. Yeah. I don't think so. It's kind of insulting. <laughs> it's very patronizing. It is it's very super patronizing. Insulting. <laughs> it's super insulting. That's everything my tiger parents told me I had to do. <laughs> right. So if, if anything, almost like East Asian immigrants who, you know, hustle when they move here that's exactly the kinds of things that that they tell their kids to do yeah so. well that's why the east asian community is generally not mentioned so much uh, in all of this right and i think pretty soon i was talking to someone last night i think pretty soon i think we're about five years away from just like people of color will mean non-asian and non-white like yeah. East Asians aren't allowed either. But you know, like even the word people of color now is it's not you can't it's like BIPOC. They add it. Oh, you can't it. say that anymore. They've added it. I'm added sorry, the I'm BI. behind. You are so <laughs> behind. They're like again, what is this? I find that symbolic because it's almost like they're by putting more letters, you're saying that black and indigenous are not people of color. You're trying to separate so it's like we're we're yes. it's like splintering of identity, balkanization of identity. Well, it's, it's a hierarchy black. within the name, yeah, black and then indigenous. And then the rest of you. And people of color. And the rest. Like you whatever, from, United that was Colors Bever of That Benedict. was Beverly's joke last night, just to be clear, Beverly's operating the camera. <laughs> she was talking about that and she said it was like Gilgan's Island. It's like Asians are like, and the rest. That's the, the, the <laughs> POC part of it. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> You were, um, sorry, go, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You were one of the, so I, I, uh, I didn't see the whole panel, but I saw most of the panel on race. And one thing I appreciate about you, and one of the reasons I wanted to have this interview was, um, I think you were the only person taking a principled stance on any of the racial issues rather than like a practical concede some points, but we can't do that. Um, I want to just, I just want to let you have your say about can you just describe for people who weren't there like what was the what was the panel about and what was your main one takeaway point you would leave people with the the panel question was um 
what are the primary obstacles to racial equity? And firstly, I was like, equity? Excuse me. Um, because that was already, you know, kind of for me, just that's the wrong goal. It yes. should be equality. And the difference being that equality is about treating people equally and equity is really about making everybody equal. And that's a huge, huge distinction. I mean, the goal of equity, if you, you know, if you go by the dictionary definition, which these days are flexible, but if you go by the official de dictionary definition is ultimately to minimize or decrease or eliminate any racial disparities in terms of outcomes. Right. And that is it's it's bizarre to me that that should be the goal because how do we know that you know within any and for, for firstly all of this depends on how you draw the category right yes like all for yes. that let's begin with that which is already problematic so let's say all people considered black all people considered asian american and then white these buckets that we put people in now you're saying that any differences between these groups the only driver is racism and therefore we have to make everything equal? Like, couldn't it be that people start out equal, but because of some inherent factors or other factors, you know, just purely just even driven by personal agency, end up different? Like, we're all different. You can't, you know, the idea, like one of the things that they were saying was, my, my, my co-panelists were saying, was that you know, you can't discount the fact that some people start 50 meters behind the line. And if you think about what systemic racism is, it, it kind of, you know, it's a handicap. And so we're all running this race of life and people, you know, who are black experience this, have this handicap. So we need to adjust, right? We need to adjust and kind of give them a leg up in life so that they start on the same starting line. And one of my points was just that there are a lot of ways in which we are all handicapped. And race may be one, but it's not the only one. Um, and again, it's not universally applied because a very, very wealthy black person has every chance in life to succeed in a way that a very poor white person does not. And so that cannot be the factor, right? It's, it's, it's just too flattening as a category. And number two, do, you know, if it's really about equity and making sure everybody starts, you know, at the same line, this is unrealistic. Like there are so yeah. many ways that people are born with Privilege and, and the concept of privilege was, I think, again, it's one of those things where it starts out with really good intentions. I think it's great, right? It's like, it's basically like, you know, in Christianity, you're like, count your blessings. That's what it was. It's like, be thankful for what you have and be aware that not everything was, you know, a lot of things that you benefit from are things that happen to you, circumstantial. Um, like what, what family you were born into, um, your height, your looks, your, you know, your cognitive abilities that that happen to you happen to have at this time period because it could be really good at spear throwing, but sorry, that's just not really <laughs> useful today. So, but if you're really good at singing, which you know, I don't know, 50 years, five hundred years ago would never have brought you riches, but today would earn you billions of dollars, for example, um, that makes all the difference in the world. So it just seems to me to be so limiting to look at this issue, not, terms in, not, not just in terms of the principle of it, but also in terms of what it does to society. This, you know, do we want to just constantly entrench these divisions in life? I, I don't want to live in that world. I don't either. And I think there's something about the concept of intersectionality that they, I'm, I'm sure you've heard that term that they yeah. use, that they don't, 
take it to its logical conclusion, because if you did, you arrive at what you're saying, which is that every individual is privileged in some ways and marginalized in some ways in an infinite number of ways. And you can't just start adjusting for one way that you think that they're, you know, marginalized or privileged, that you're assuming based on one category. And then you're not taking into account like this these myriad of other mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. I Where totally does it agree. end? I totally agree. Yeah. 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 And I think the idea of reparations was, you know, I clarified with one of my co-panelists as well later on. It seems to me the argument to be a bit of a spiritual, like, it, you know, it's going to make the people whole again. Like they, they, it, this is about repaying a, a debt, an emotional, spiritual debt to, to society. And I, okay, just the, how we're going to adjudicate something like that is a mess, number one. Um, even if in principle, this sounds like, okay, maybe people are owed something. The problem is always, you know, in the details. How this is executed, um, is this enough? Well, and, and, it's not, and, and actually the truth is they're not owed anything. The people who wronged them aren't here. Yes. Like I, so I had this, it was probably Nico who was making that yes. argument. Right. And I had this conversation with him last night and it was like, if you wanted to make a serious case, he was bringing up redlining laws as a recent thing. Okay. I said, okay, fine. If you're going to propose some way that we can find everyone who passed a redlining law and everyone who voted for everyone who passed a redlining law and they have to make reparations in some like measurable way to the people who are affected by redlining laws let's hear the proposal like that's the that's the only possible restitution that's just right. but anything beyond that is like a um is a is a collectivist like oh you have the same skin color of some people that mostly did these bad things and so and i have the same skin color as the people over here who mostly had bad things done to them uh, that's not how justice and debt work. You don't ha- you don't owe a debt, right, right? For something you didn't personally do. Why are you extracting that from people that had nothing to do with the you know the original incident that you're trying to get reparations for? Right. Um, I guess the idea is you know the argument that he probably made is is it's about it's about the trajectories, about the you know the vector of. Of, of that act kind of affecting descendants. And then the question is how many generations does that go? Right. It seems, yeah, it seems untenable to me, even you if fell it's- back on a social contract argument, by the way, was the, the end of this. Okay. So, that, okay. but kind of, yeah, it is untenable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't want to keep you too long. We are trying to make a pool party. <laughs> I would rather talk to Melissa Chen, but I will go do Melissa the. Melissa Chen might come to the pool party. <laughs> oh, no, 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 I'm not. She's Definitely not. not. Okay. Oh, you're not. I didn't bring okay. my swimsuit. But. Before we go, since we're pre-recording this and it's not live, I'm going to put up a picture of your doggy Gibbs. Okay. Can you tell our audience? Because my dog always interrupts the podcast. Can He's you... here. I think I can go get him. Really? Yeah. He should be in the. Yeah. Hey, I mean, it's yeah. not live. Okay. It's not okay. live. Okay, <laughs> I'll go get him. Why can't it be an ascot? Because I feel like that's a... Yeah, you should do an ascot. Right? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> it's a pun. It says, come at me, bro. Nice. <laughs> come at me, bro. Okay, so this is Gibbs. And we just had to put him on camera for all the all our fans who like the doggies. <laughs> this is Gibbs. He was at the conference all weekend. I will say, Gibbs is much better behaved than Tiger. Hey. <laughs> I want to Get- see Tiger. Look at his shirt. It says, come at me, bro. And it glows in the dark. 
That does it really? Yeah. <laughs> what I like about Gibbs is that I've never seen. Is he? I can't remember. Is he part poodle? Uh, he's full poodle. Full poodle. I've never seen these very long legs on a on a small poodle, <laughs> and it makes him. He prances around. Yeah, he trots like a show. Yes, like show heritage, though. You were saying, right? Wasn't his it? parents? Yeah, were show dogs, but this one couldn't <laughs> be showed. So nice. <laughs> and I think I know why. <laughs> why? So not, not that smart. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. But sweet. But sweet. Well, thank you for letting me get cuddles with him. Tiger's going to be so jealous. <laughs> it's okay. Come on, Gizzy. Nice. Okay. Well, thank you for the conversation, Melissa. I, sorry, yeah. you look like you were yeah. going to wrap up, so I was just going to do it. Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, thank you for the conversation. I'd love to have you back, back. at some point where we can have a more in-depth discussion. In but person? Sure. Oh, I, yeah. I, I Wait, are you? Where Texas. are you? Are you in? Well, I'm stuck in New York because oh. my title is the New York editor of Spectator. Ah. So, oh, so I'm so a bit stuck there. there. Um, but no, I, I've actually always wanted to move out. Kind of pisses me off that like all my friends are slowly moving out of New York because I'm like I'm the original. I've been saying that for like years, and now I'm the last one left. So and yeah, I'm in California leaving. actually, and the same thing. I've been telling everyone to leave, but I'm still there. I'm trying to get them to come to Texas. Which, which part, LA or San Francisco? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because so I'm I'm actually yeah. probably gonna get out to LA soon. Oh, you are. Yeah. Be so close well, so we'll bad. put all of your links in the comments, but just tell people quickly where they can follow you if they're oh, interested in your um, work. Well, on Twitter, if you're in, in, interested in bite-sized bitching, um, it will be at Miss M S Mel Chen M E L C H E N, um, and. If you know you want to check out more about uh, our foundation, a library site, you can just go to www.ideasbeyondborders.org. Oh, and Spectator's website uh, for my more political writing. It's uh, spectator.us. That's it. Cool. Thank you, Melissa. Welcome. Thank time. you. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. Our trip to the Better Discourse Conference in Milwaukee was made possible by the support of the following individuals, with a special thanks to Dr. Carlin Borisenko, who generously donated the Super Chat proceeds from her episode with Carrie. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. According to the FBI, these are all Russian bots. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Marxism will definitely work this time. 
computer voice Curtis. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.